Hello, bonjour et dansez. I'm Paula Simons and this is Alberta Unbound. Last month, I had the honor to be on the University of Alberta campus to host the Chancellor's Forum on the Future of Food, an event organized by U of A Chancellor Peggy Garrity with five eclectic panelists with a wide range of expertise in agriculture, food science, and agricultural economics. In front of an enthusiastic live audience, we held a lively discussion about the challenges facing Alberta's agricultural sector and about the role of agriculture in Alberta's own sense of identity. As the Deputy Chair of the Standing Senate Committee on Agriculture and Forestry, I was especially pleased to be asked to moderate this discussion. And I'm even more pleased to share it with all of you here on Alberta Unbound. Let's dig in. Thank you so much, Chancellor Garrity. I'm very pleased to be back here in Amiskwichi, Waskahagen, where we are all treaty people. It's just we tellement heureuse d'être ici avec vous ce soir to talk about the future of food. It is a pressing question in the face of climate change and drought and flood, of COVID-triggered disruptions in global supply chains, in the face of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where prices at the grocery store are faced with an inflation that's not been seen for a generation. Add to that our concerns about greenhouse gas intensity of industrial agriculture, the social and ethical concerns about the raising and consumption of, of animals for meat, fundamental concerns about the health of the soil itself, topped off with ongoing concerns about the economic viability of the traditional family farm. Those are some of the themes we're gonna be exploring tonight, looking at the opportunities for technology, investment, innovation, and pure science, where they can prepare us as Albertans for the challenges ahead. And I am delighted to introduce to you our remarkable panel. Alison Sundstrom is an inventor, an investor, and a venture capitalist. She's a fellow and founding partner of the Creative Destruction Lab and CEO of ConserveX, a Canadian company developing and investing in emerging technology in agriculture. She's also a general partner of the 51 Food and the AgTech Fund and was named last year as one of the 50 most influential people in Canadian agriculture. This is Alison. Dr. Bill Shostak holds the Bocock Chair for Agriculture and Environment at the University of Alberta. His research revolves around the most fundamental of agricultural inputs, soil and water, their importance for the environment and the impact of human activities upon these most important resources. That's Bill. Dr. Ellen Goddard is an agricultural economist, the former cooperative chair in agriculture marketing and business, past president of the Canadian Agricultural Economic Society, and a distinguished fellow with the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute, with a special interest in genomics and the impact of agricultural policy on consumer and producer behavior. Isha Datar was born in Saskatoon, raised in Edmonton, and is an alumna of the University of Alberta. Isha is the executive director of New Harvest, a not-for-profit research institute advancing cellular agriculture, or food grown from cells. She has co-founded two unicorn companies. She did not raise unicorns, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, her unicorn companies made milk and egg protein without cows or chickens. And she says she aims to ensure that cellular agriculture happens in Canada and not to Canada. 
And finally, Glazy De Silva is an assistant professor in the Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutritional Science here at the University of Alberta. She holds the BCRC Hayes Chair in Beef Production Systems, and her research focuses on beef cattle nutrition, management, and stress reduction, looking at ways to raise healthier and more sustainable herds. Welcome to all of our guests, and welcome to all of you. So Ellen, I'm going to start by putting you on the spot because you're closest to me. <laughs> In the wake of the supply chain shocks caused by COVID, by climate change, and by the war in Ukraine, I think a lot of Canadians and a lot of Albertans are realizing how much we've taken our food security for granted. As an economist and as someone who studied the sociology of food production, how do you think the events of the last two years have changed our perspective on the future of food and food security? Well, the first thing I think you've already said is that right from the beginning of COVID, it was a shock to everybody. It wasn't only toilet paper that wasn't in the grocery stores. The reality was for most people, that had never entered their mind, that they would have the opportunity of going to the grocery store and not finding food. People coped in incredible different ways, but one of the ways was a bigger interest in local food and direct contact with farmers and finding out what goes on on the farm, which has spilled over to sustained interest in more sustainable production practices and looking for why things are the way they are and why the foods that we look at appear in the grocery store. My own research would suggest that we're actually more tolerant of technology and food now because people have realized that it's not going to be automatic for the rest of your life that every single food stuff is going to appear on the grocery store shelves in exactly the same format. So people are now willing to try things that they might have been a little bit more opposed to before. That's interesting. Now, Bill, Alberta is blessed with two remarkable natural resources, our soil, and our water. And I think a lot of people have also taken those things for granted for a long time. So what do we have to do to ensure that we have the healthy soil and water we need for our agricultural future here? I'm really not sure what we need to do. Um, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I did. It's really not new that our soil is important. If I can quote uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, who pointed out that uh, civilization itself rests upon the soil. Soil is, uh, is the basis for 95% of our agricultural production, but it's also important for, uh, for forestry. And uh, it's home to most of the world's biodiversity. Uh, the organic matter in the soil is helping to stabilize a global climate system. I mean, it's a, it's a carbon reservoir. Uh, thanks to plants, and it's also a water reservoir, and it's a water filtration system. Given the importance of soil, um, I think of it as our third most important natural resource. Uh, first one is oxygen. Uh, just try holding your breath for a little while to see how important <laughs> oxygen is. And then water, and then soil. So we've known how important it is, um, I don't know how else to say it. It's, uh, it's really what sustains us. Glazy, you come from Brazil, and you've made your career now in Alberta, two places where cattle is king and where beef production is part 
of cultural identity. At a time when climate change and drought are putting more and more pressure on our grasslands, which are such important carbon sinks, how does our culture of beef production need to evolve to prepare for this climate changed future? Just to give a little bit of context, when we talk about beef production, we are talking about contributing to feed the world, right? Like beef is really important to, um, to, the, to deliver uh, nutrients uh, uh, to the population. So when we talk about beef production, many of us can think just as cows and meat, which is already great, but when we talk about beef production, it's way beyond this. We are talking about human nutrition, right? We are talking about food security. We are talking about uh, ecosystems, biodiversity, wildlife, our earth, and uh, how cattle is important to sequester carbon uh, through the grasslands, as you mentioned, and how cattle is important to maintain those grasslands that unfortunately we have uh, been losing uh, throughout the years. So both Brazil, United States, and Canada, when I think about beef production, we need also to think about the livelihoods of the, the farmers who are working with beef production and all of that beef production represents um, to the economics uh, and so on. Beef production, it's really important to, to address um, many, uh, many topics that goes beyond uh, food production. It's sustainability uh, and it's challenging. We, we have seen uh, many, many things on the news about how beef production is contributing to methane emissions, for example, but there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding and uh, misinformation that is behind uh, beef production, which is much more helpful and beneficial to the world than it's harmful. And I'm really proud of the industry, uh, how the industry is moving forward, especially the Canadian uh, beef industry, how it's working to, to minimize those negative effects and it's fighting uh, through climate change because it can impact production, right? Like, for example, last year we had a really bad drought uh, and impacted food prices uh, for cattle, uh, hay prices, and so on. So the challenge is there. We need to find solutions to keep fighting climate change because we cannot just think on the future, but also on the present. We are already facing uh, some of those consequences and uh, the needs are for today. Now, Isha. Your work is literally redefining the way we think about beef and about the way we consume animal protein. We hear a lot of chatter. I don't want to say in the media, because I was the media for 30 years, but there's lots of stories in the news about test tube steaks. But tell us, how real is this technology and, and how might it work? It is very real. I learned about the idea that we could grow meat from cells here at the U of A 2009 in a meat science class that is now taught by someone sitting in the audience today. And back then it was very much a theory. It was this idea that if really what we want is a boneless, skinless chicken breast, why not grow the muscle tissue rather than grow beaks and feathers and all these kinds of things. In the years since that class, this field has grown to be to secure like literally billions of dollars of investment, hundreds of companies around the world who believe that growing food from cells is a really important part of our uh, food strategy in a climate change world. And it's really 
looking at how we can find resilience in our food system by building diversity into it. If you think about how much land we dedicate to farming animals in the earth, it's about a third of our planet, um, that's kind of the only system we have right now for producing animal products. Um, to me, it's kind of similar to how we needed to transition energy from one kind of dirty, dangerous type of energy, coal, into many more alternatives. And so to me, uh, part of the plan going forward is how can you grow more foods in different ways? And growing meat from cells is one of those ways. But it's not just meat. Um, even more real than meat from cells are things like dairy proteins or egg proteins or kind of other food types that would traditionally come from animal that is grown by a different cell type. Yeah, and you have actually brought to market, right, dairy products? That t Tell us about this. Yeah, so I helped co-found some companies but have since walked away from them to focus more on the nonprofit side because I think that this idea is so much bigger than what one company can do, so much bigger than what 100 companies can do. It is really like a gigantic paradigm shift in a new industry and a new ecosystem. But that company that I helped co-found a long time ago, Perfect Day Foods, does have products on the market, uh, cream cheese, ice cream, um, yogurts, milk, uh, that is made from whey protein that was created by a recombinant uh, microorganism instead of from a cow. Wow. So yes, you can buy that if you're in the States, not here yet. Now, Allison, you're the venture capitalist. What does it take to get innovations like these and make them real, to get them to market? And how does Alberta prepare itself to compete in this new world of agricultural innovation? I'm so excited about the potential for agriculture across the board. I had the great fortune to uh, participate with University of Alberta researchers, some who are in the room today. Uh, we took our technology around the world and it demonstrated to me the potential to actually grow companies from Alberta everywhere. Senator, the opportunity uh, in agriculture is probably one of our largest opportunities. We are an eight trillion uh, industry that is going to grow over the next years to, a, to an almost 12 trillion industry. And we can transform and be the most sustainable industry that really is not just looking to drive to net zero, but can be a sink. So I'm very excited about this and I love being on this panel because it crosses everything from soil to cattle and having spent my life in the livestock industry, I'm very supportive of uh, livestock. They are the world's greatest upcyclers. They can eat things that, other, that we cannot eat as humans, and they can convert to a sustainable protein. Now, we do have to look at our industry, frankly, and we do have to make some change. But at the same time, what Isha is speaking about is just hugely exciting. Over the next 30 years, we are going to reimagine everything we have from food to materials. We will be growing leather uh, through the use of mycelium. But what it's gonna take is money. It takes an investment both in, in research and development, but it also takes us as consumers to buy product that fit our sustainability desire. And it also takes us to understand that as a community, 
Canada is a very small country. We can't rely on government. We must have investment. We must have a very healthy ecosystem. The healthy ecosystem goes from philanthropy through to venture capital. And I became a venture capitalist because I couldn't believe why they wouldn't invest in me. So I had to figure out how do you actually create venture capital in Canada. And I'm pleased to say, I think that we're building a much more stimulated or stimulating economy for investors to be here. And it largely resides in universities. We have so much talent in our universities. We must fund it and we must bring our inventions to market. So that's why I'm so very excited and thank you for the invitation. So then Bill, that segues to a question I have for you. And one of the things, Bill, that you highlighted when we were speaking earlier is the challenge of getting funding in the academy, funding for pure science research, funding for, for, for universities at a time when it seems that public dollars for universities are being squeezed all the time. What kind of work do we need to do to ensure that we have the robust support we need for academic research on our campuses? You're very good at asking me questions I can't answer. <laughs> um, I really don't know. I will make a confession here. When I was a graduate student many, many years ago, I was young and naive. I wrote a letter to, um, sent it to every daily newspaper in Canada, 144 newspapers at the time, about underfunding of research. Uh, at that time, we were spending uh, about half as much per capita, or per, yeah, per capita, as countries like uh, Germany and, and Switzerland. And uh, here we are 40 years later, and we're actually in the same place. I think part of the problem in Canada uh, I know it's a terrible thing to say that it's a problem to be living in probably the richest country in the world, where we literally have every possible mineral resource and fossil fuels and agricultural land and water resources and so on. So we don't have to think as much as other people do. Uh, for example, in Switzerland, where they don't have all those, those resources. I can only say how important it is to have funding for research uh, I was very fortunate, two-thirds of my career was spent working either in Switzerland or in Germany, and it's a completely different culture. They have a science culture, and they understand the importance of funding research. I'm thrilled about the work that my colleagues are doing and what Alison had to say about the importance of funding the research, but also looking at other ways to fund, fund the research. So I think just knocking on the door at the federal government, I just, I don't think that's the answer because we've been knocking at the door for a long time and whoever's on the other side of the door just hasn't heard. I think that we need to stop thinking about funding research because research is just part of the pipeline of all the things that we need to see change and happen. And um, Allison and I are both on a, the National Synthetic Biology the National Engineering Biology Committee or National, something like that? National Bioengineering Council of Canada. <laughs> Whatever it's called. Anyway, <laughs> Allison said something that stuck with me many, many months ago, maybe even years ago, where she said 
the bioeconomy that we want to build doesn't need funding, it needs financing. Yes. And I love that phrase because it shows that it's not just funding for research for these first projects, it's the funding for the research for the first project so that they can be kicked off and become the things that actually change the world and affect the world and create more sustainable ways to feed people. So I just wanted to bounce in there a little bit. It is the, the research is just step one. So Ellen, I want to take Isha's project as a kind of a case study. When you're describing it, Isha, it sounds like something right out of Star Trek with the replicator. But Ellen, you've spent a long time studying consumer behavior, producer behavior in response to genomic research, which is, you know, people were already worried about frankenfoods. What do you think it will take to convince consumers and industry to embrace something as futuristic as meat or cheese cultured in the lab? So the interesting part of that is that um, some of the industry groups that I've worked with, say um, cattle breeders, for example, or pig breeders, are worried about the use of some genetic technologies because they're already anticipating that there could be a consumer backlash. So there, there has been a cycle going on where perhaps some things that should have been introduced to the market and could have been alleviating some of the public concerns have not been introduced because of risk aversion. And, and that's potentially a problem. All of this stuff is based on is how much trust you have. Trust in the um, people that create the products, trust in the people that are going to sell you the product, trust in the government to regulate the products. And we can shake that trust very, very easily. And somehow BSE shook some trust when it happened, particularly in Europe, more so than in Canada. But that made us think maybe the government wasn't on top of all of this stuff and created some other uncertainties. The reality is, though, that it's always a trade-off. And people need to understand that there is a trade-off. And because of COVID and some of the shortages that we continue to see, and certainly because of the price inflation that is affecting everybody viscerally at the moment. I'm not suggesting for a fact that Canadians are the worst off globally because of price inflation for food, because we're lucky um, compared to lots of other countries where it's much more devastating. But when these things and these uncertainties creep in, then you start looking for ways that you could um, achieve these similar products at similar cost, hopefully, but maybe in ways that are not as traditional as what you um, thought you needed to have. Yeah. Food is, by the way, a very emotional, cultural, historical thing. We have a tendency to like to eat things the way our grandparents ate them, and maybe now we're going to have to move past that because maybe we've lost some of those opportunities. You know, I think back when you're talking about uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, because I was a journalist covering the BSE crisis. I remember I got a phone call from the Japanese consulate. And when I spoke to the consul general, he said, I don't understand. He said, in Japan, the moment they discovered that they had BSE, everybody stopped eating beef. And he said, here in Alberta, you ate more beef. And I said, well, it's because it's so much a part of our cultural identity as Albertans. I mean, I remember 
I never ate more steak than I did that summer. We bought ground beef that I think sat in some people's freezers for years because we brought more than we could possibly eat to support yeah. the industry. Yeah. And yet, Glazy, I mean, we are in cattle country. At the same time, there is a global, a rising global concern about animal welfare, animal rights, pushback to the idea of, of taking animals to slaughter. So do you think there will always be a market demand for beef? And if so, what do we need to do to make its production more humane and more environmentally efficient? When we see, for example, methane contribution for agriculture globally, and then we compare that to Canada, uh, averages are kind of unfair, right? Because methane emissions, for example, uh, can change a lot depending on what cattle consumes, right? Like how they are managed, uh, breed, age, and how long it takes to finish a cattle and so on. So for example, if we go to some parts of the world uh, that takes longer, for example, to finish cattle. Cattle uh, has uh, not that good genetics, or uh, the forage uh, those animals are consuming are not good. That can increase methane emissions in the area. But here in Canada, uh, that is a lot that has been done uh, with the support of research, um, science-based information. From the 1981 to 2011, we have reduced methane emissions by, uh, for cattle by 15%. It's a lot, and that was an effort that was done by the industry because um, there was adoptions of practices that were recommended by researchers, for example, in, the, in terms of improving genetics of the herd, nutrition, uh, reproductive efficiency of those animals, health. Producers, they know that to produce, uh, to be efficient, cattle needs to be healthy, right? The soils need to be healthy. Our grasslands need to be healthy. There is still a goal. Uh, there is more to be done, right? There is still, we still need to produce more with what we have. We know populations growing. We are losing space. Uh, for agriculture, for example, uh, there is this urban expansion. So there is less people who want to work in agriculture. Many people, they want to go back to, to go to the city, for example, and they don't want to work in agriculture, and that, that's an issue. We need to be more efficient to use less water, for example, uh, less land, and have this cattle uh, being more efficient. So. It is, it is not that easy. Uh, I think, for example, the more efficient we are, the less window we have for improvements, right, compared to places where we have a lot of things to improve our, our, already. But the goal is to keep trying, uh, right, to improve on grazing management, to keep improving uh, herd selection, to find animals more efficient, traits that are uh, more efficient for cattle to consume more and gain more. There is opportunities for research, things to do, and uh, also in collaboration with other places to try to get the average, the world average down, uh, and ours uh, even more lower. Bill. You complained about the last two questions. So let's see if we can, we can make you happier with, with this one. <laughs> we've, we've been talking about technology and technological advancement and sort of cutting edge agriculture. But some of your research is at the other end of the spectrum, looking at the mineral content of traditional indigenous foods, country foods, whether that's Saskatoon berries or beaver loin. 
So when you're looking at the nutritional values of those foods, what do you find and do you think that they have a future as something that Albertans can develop and take to market? Yeah, so just uh, for a little bit of background, so uh, my laboratory at the U of A is sort of a, a dream come true. It's called the Swamp Laboratory for studying trace elements in soil, water, air, and plants. We, we don't actually study manure, but we needed an M in that name. <laughs> but it's a metal-free, ultra-clean laboratory. And one reason why I moved back to Canada from Germany is uh, what I'd been hearing about the heavy metal pollution from the oil sands industry in northern Alberta. And what I'd been hearing just did not add up, if you understand anything about uh, geology and bitumen chemistry. We started doing work in the lower Athabasca River watershed. And uh, part of what we do is we monitor atmospheric deposition or study atmospheric deposition using uh, sphagnum moss from peat box because they get their inputs exclusively from the atmosphere. And while we're out there sampling, I was looking at all the wild berries and I said, well, let's analyze those too, uh, just to see. And absolutely fascinating, um, the berries are just full of essential micronutrients like manganese and iron and copper and nickel and zinc. And what's even more remarkable scientifically um, and this is where the basic research comes in, the stuff that you do just out of curiosity. Uh, peat bogs are the most copper deficient soils on the planet, and the berries are full of copper. Hmm. So how do they get their copper? All of the berries that we've analyzed, it doesn't matter if they're cranberries, blueberries, you know, whatever, lingonberries, they all have about the same amount of copper. So the plant must have a way of regulating copper uptake, I guess, with a mycorrhizal association and so on. So absolutely fascinating. And this led us to look at other uh, wetland plants that are important to indigenous people. So Labrador tea, which is an important medicinal plant, rat root. Uh, Labrador tea is full of manganese. And it's probably a, an important dietary source of manganese if you, if you uh, drink Labrador tea. Uh, and then I was motivated to analyze beaver tissue. And absolutely fascinating. So I didn't realize of all the game meats, uh, beaver is actually the most nutritious. Uh, so highest in protein, lowest in fat. And uh, so again, micronutrients, literally, I'm talking about the micronutrients that are required for human health. So we require chromium and nickel and copper and zinc and iron and manganese and selenium. And the beaver was rich in, in all of that. And the trapper that I got to know, uh, he asked me if I'd want to try some barbecued beaver loins. How many people have tried barbecued beaver loins? Put up your hands. No, there, no hands. There are, there are no hands. No hands, okay. Uh, turns out, most delicious meat I've ever had. The beaver population has really made a comeback. The beaver was almost wiped out, if you know the history of the fur trade. We now have them in downtown Toronto. There's beavers in downtown Toronto. And I know in Europe, they've reintroduced the European beaver, and in Central Europe, the beaver is really making a comeback. Well, that can be a problem if you have a fruit orchard, because guess what? Beavers eat trees. So now in parts of Central Europe, like in Poland, they're considering 
uh, harvesting beavers as a source of meat. For our indigenous people that have been concerned about their diet, I'm just looking at these micronutrients. I think fish and berries and wild game, that's a very healthy diet. And I think we should be doing the basic science that we need to do to really understand the nutritional value of these foods. And hopefully, given, giving indigenous people the confidence that they need in the food that's literally right there. Around. Can you imagine we killed all those beavers and made hats out of them? We wore them instead of eating them, which tells you where our priorities were, I guess. Allison, we're having this conversation set against the backdrop of COP27. There's so much criticism of some of our traditional agricultural practices from the way we use nitrogen fertilizer to the way we rely on irrigation in the Palliser Triangle. And it's always seemed to me that I am not a venture capitalist. But if I, if I had money to invest, I would be leery of investing it until I got a really clear signal that we were serious about climate change. So what do we need to do to send investment capital the market signal that we're serious about making these transitions that we need to make? I think that venture capital is kind of a recent creation. It really was founded in about mid-90s. It's really a nascent investment vehicle. What I'm really fascinated by is the conversation here today. We need to invest in fundamental research, but we need to be investing in the future. If we're investing in the past, we've already been there. So the future is looking at a number of things, and we've got a really big challenge ahead of us. You know, we're talking about some very kind and nice things, but our challenge is huge. I had a gentleman at an event that I spoke at said, we are nine meals away from anarchy. Now, I thought that was a little bit far out there, but I started thinking about it. And if our supply chains break down, we've seen it during pandemic, we've seen things. How are we going to, from 1960 to now, we produced double the food. We also impacted the planet. What we did was amazing, and it was science-driven. It was just amazing but we did have an incredible impact on the planet. So now we have to face the fact we've done this damage. It's the Anthropocene. We have probably created more planetary damage than we could reverse. So going forward for our next generation, we have to change that. We have to face the fact on certain industries we have that impact, and we have to do things differently. The only way we're gonna do things differently is through creative disruption. We're also going to, it's innovation. So we need every scientist, every biologist, every geneticist, every soil scientist, every beaver scientist, everything that we can possibly deploy, we need that to solve our problems. We also have to make sure we don't put the burden of our change on our farmers. And that's a really big concern for me. So I'll bring up another point. Along with creative disruption comes creative financing. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. We need venture capital investing in the future. We need it to be more inclusive. That's my involvement with the 51. We have to look at gender inclusivity. We have to look at diverse founders. Silicon Valley only invests about 3% in uh, women-founded companies. They spend even less on diverse founders, so entrepreneurs of color. 
So if we're only investing in those that look just like us, we're going to end up with a society that looks just like that culture. So we do have to start investing more inclusively. But creative financing comes from, let's take our philanthropy, which uh, Isha is. She is a philanthropist. She took her involvement out of Perfect Day and is now reinvesting that into companies. That is an area where we can see people investing in philanthropy. But we also have to go through all the way to pension funds. And if you, just a little statistic for you, pension funds in Canada are about 15% of our wealth. And that is about $3 trillion. I like numbers that start with T. And so what we should be doing is making sure that our pension funds and the things that we invest in are investing in the world that we want to see. And so let's be the change. Let's make the investment. Our business expenditure on research and development is less than Slovenia. Slovenia, lovely country, but definitely not the economic power that we have or the resource power that we have. So we need to start investing in innovation, and maybe we need to use some very sophisticated tax levers and other levers that if you invest in new technology, you invest in research, you get some kind of tax credit back. So I think it really comes down to we're an agricultural nation, we must invest in it, we must protect it, and we must be sustainable. I'm not a philanthropist, I just run a nonprofit organization, but the philanthropy part of it kind of happened in the work of the philanthropy. But I, people are always surprised that New Harvest has never really had like a benefactor, it's never been funded by a billionaire that was like, go and do this kind of thing. It's, it's always been funded by a lot of grassroots donations and there have been some wealthy people that have supported it too. The reason why I focus on philanthropy for making things happen is because there were no funding structures for what I wanted to do. Speaking to your point about creative financing, when you think about how research is funded, healthcare is funded usually by, to use the US example, the NIH funds healthcare, the USDA funds agriculture, SALAG is kind of right in the middle because the technology comes from the medical field, but the application is in ag. So you could not convince a medical researcher who has a ton of funding from pharma companies to start looking into culturing cow cells. Why would they want to do that? And then on the flip side, in the, on the ag sector, there's only so many folks in ag that would regularly culture tissue, like do tissue culture. So the facilities are not really set up for this kind of work. So we're really complete gap. And the future of SALAG and what I think is the future of most innovation going forward is all going to occur in these gaps and in these little spaces around these artificial kind of categories that we've created about how science works or how science would be put into buckets. And so we absolutely need the creative financing for exactly that reason is these kind of pillars don't matter anymore. Like this bioeconomy that is coming can be used to create any biological thing that, that blurs the lines between like food and fuel and fiber and all this kind of stuff. I want to come back to something Alison though said at the beginning of her statement, which is that we're nine skipped meals away from anarchy. War in Ukraine has been a huge shock for countries that depend on Ukraine as the traditional breadbasket of Europe. 
And it's not just Ukraine. Ethiopia is experiencing its worst drought in 50 years. There are droughts in Argentina, in Australia, affecting crop production. And I just read yesterday that Brazil has lost 28% of its agricultural land to drought. So in the face of food shortages that aren't just about the fact that, you know, we didn't get our favorite kind of firm tofu, where was the firm tofu for two years? We couldn't get our favorite things at the grocery store. We're talking about the potential for a real crisis where people can't get the food that they need to feed their families. How do we make our production more resilient in the face of these geopolitical and climate crises? It takes policy, it takes commitment, it takes that financing, but it also takes us as consumers demanding demanding um, safe food, less waste. We ourselves can waste less. I think it takes a community to drive the change that we need to see. This is a very frightening time. Geopolitical conflict has the potential to shift us into such a polarized place where we stop trading and we start restricting ourselves to our own community. And for Canada, that would be a desperate move. We live to export. We must keep our trade barriers down and we must ensure that we enable ourselves to be the type of Canadian producer that is required around the world. So we need to remain statesmen. I think our resource base in Canada that has been well described already gives us a responsibility. We owe the world to be able to produce food that we can distribute as well as the tools to produce food that we can distribute in sustainable ways. One of the papers that Isha's group has written is that they're producing food with a mission. Was that something in the title of the nature? Yes, it was called uh, Cultured Meat Needs a Race to Mission, Not a Race to Market. And that is absolutely true. And that is something that consumers will get behind. Consumers want to feel good about the decisions they're making. And it's really critical that they can identify the good that they're doing with those decisions. Bill? The panel already knows this is a topic that's uh, very difficult for me to talk about. I'm a uh, Canadian of... Uh, Ukrainian descent. Uh, my father was from Ukraine. He survived the famine of 1932-1933 by, by eating grass. And uh, that had a profound effect on, on me. When I was living in Switzerland, and Ukraine became an independent country, I did a lot of humanitarian work in Ukraine. I collected lab equipment in Bern and Basel and Geneva and Zurich, used lab equipment, beautiful condition, and I brought it to Switzerland, or to Ukraine, to Lviv and Kiev and Kharkiv. So Ukraine really is the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, the, the soils are just absolutely amazing. Ukraine is in the top 10 for exporting rye and barley and wheat and corn. And this war waged by Russia on Ukraine can't be seen as anything less than a war on civilization. I mentioned the quotation from Thomas Jefferson, soil is the basis of our civilization. And the only reason for the war, just so it's clear to everybody, is uh, Ukraine is a successful democracy. And that's a nightmare for the mad midget 
in Moscow. So the Ukrainians will win this war, and they will win the war with the help of civilized countries around the world, and I'm very proud of the support that they're getting from Canada. I wish there was more. They will win this war, and then they're going to have to rebuild the entire country. And uh, the soils are just going to be a mess. I mean, if you know any farmers, you know when they're cultivating their soil, they don't like uneven spots in their fields. What is it going to be like plowing a field that's full of craters? I was reading this morning about a report, 2,000 dairy cattle destroyed in one missile strike. So it's unbelievable the devastation. So all of that used lab equipment that I collected many, many years ago, I guess when the war is over and all the Russians are gone, I guess I will restart that. And I'm sure people from around the world will be helping. I just want to leave you with a quotation from Volodymyr Zelensky for the COP27 meeting. I think he's become the leader of leaders. He said, we can't have a global climate policy without peace. And uh, so that's what, has to, that's what has to be achieved. Glazy and Isha, when we have in our heads the future of agriculture, we've often thought of it as a male-dominated uh, economy, which is ridiculous because women have been farmers since the very beginning. But neither of you, I think, fits the traditional profile of a farmer. So how do we get young scientists and researchers like you, who represent the diversity and the future, interested in agriculture, interested in doing agricultural research as opposed to other kinds of scientific. And you could fund us. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say that, for example, in my case in particular, uh, uh, I like mentioning because one of the issues in agriculture is having people right to, to work. Um, and uh, I grew up in a big city in Brazil with no agriculture background. So I went to, to study animal sciences and then I, I was fascinated about working with animals and producing food and I thought that, whoa, that's perfect. I then had opportunities to do internships and so on and then start working uh, on the industry and then I'm completely fascinated about that. The issues that we have is uh, exactly this is less people and that, that's not just an, a Canadian problem. I was recently in the GEZO, which is the Global Agenda for Sustainable Livestock Production and everybody there was talking about that, was talking about how can we get the next generation to come and work in agriculture, right? Many people, they don't want to do that, the work anymore. So one of the solutions that, or suggestions that was mentioned that I agreed, that, I, that made me think about it was the implementation of technology uh, in agriculture and the food production. There is a lot of opportunities in that area to, to, to bring more people uh, when we implement technology and uh, make things move faster. We need that, right? In some countries, unfortunately, owning animals is the only thing women can do, right? So they cannot owe anything else. They can just own few chickens or how livestock production, animal production in general can bring, can contribute to this equality of women believing and uh, ruling. So we cannot think about sustainability without thinking on uh, animal production and all the contribution it can do to equality, right? 
uh, and food security and so on. Senator, this is the future yes. of agriculture. Smallholder farms um, produce about 80% of the world's food. They are predominantly women with unequal access to land, to capital, and to markets. So we have to fix that. But here's a little stat that I'll leave you with, with great hope. So by 2030, 65% of the wealth in Canada will be controlled by women. So perhaps activating capital of women who t traditionally donate and teaching them how to invest is perhaps another way that we can change this. But Bill, you give me such great hope. Your love of the Ukraine and your caring and compassion, I think that's what will take us through. So I have great hope. I think science and technology will drive us very much forward. Here's my fear. In the last two years, we have seen such a backlash against science itself. Mm. So much distrust of vaccines, but not just vaccines, of scientific research, of the World Health Organization, of rationalism. I don't know. I mean, maybe these things ebb and flow. Ellen, I wanted to throw that question to you first. How, in this sort of new and disturbing spirit of anti-scientism, do we fight back? Do we get people to understand that? You know, I sometimes think it's because we couldn't fix COVID right away. People went, well, if science can't fix this, then we have to put our faith in something else. How do we get people willing to accept the importance of science and technology in this era? There certainly isn't anything more important or more exciting um, going forward than the opportunities that we're going to have, both in food and in medicine and in other aspects of the bioeconomy. I don't know where we lost our path. Personally, I was devastated by the backlash against science that was, became so obvious. And it has to start somehow with children. It has to start with um, teaching children in some senses. When we think back about recycling, it was children that brought recycling home to their parents and said, didn't work as a, as, a, as a good method, but it did inspire recycling behavior. I think to a great extent, children taught us not to smoke. We can educate without indoctrination, but, we, but people need to understand that that's what we're doing. Children not exposed to the excitement of the things that are coming forward and that can change in the world is a significant loss. We have to take that very, very seriously. And I'm not seeing that taken seriously enough at the policy levels. Yeah, you know, and I worry about when you have political leaders who seem to be anti-science. Or who where make that, where political that takes use us. of yeah. anti-science. Yes, here is the final question. What are we gonna be eating 50 years from now? And what won't we be eating? I think for Christmas dinner, we're probably going to eat the same food. I'm just not sure how it's going to be created or where it's going to be created or how we're going to create it ourselves in our kitchen. But I'll lay you odds, we will still want to see something that looks like possibly turkey, possibly mashed potatoes <coughs> and gravy, but it will come from different um, origins. Bill, what are we eating in 50 years? What am I going to be eating in 50 years? <laughs> 
I hope I'll be eating in 50 years. I'm going to switch streams here a little bit. As I said, I'm, I'm just a lowly soil scientist. Uh, but I do grow quite a lot of my own food in my tiny backyard here in Edmonton. For the first time in 45 years, I spent the summer at my little farm in Ontario, and I got out my garden tiller that I hadn't used since I was in high school, and I tilled up the barnyard, and oh my goodness, the food was just absolutely amazing. I'm glad, Isha, that you mentioned the importance of diversity. When I look around Edmonton, I just see a lot of space not being used. And I just think about how much food could be grown in the city. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed what I can grow in my tiny backyard in Edmonton. And my garden in Ontario fed a lot of friends and family. It was amazing. And I'm inspired to do much more of that. I've been taking very good care of my soil. And uh, the soil rewards us. We take care of the soil, the soil takes care of us. The other reason why this is so important, I think, is it gets back to these micronutrients. You know, soil is much more than just a rooting medium for keeping the plants in place. But that's where the plants are getting all of the copper and the nickel and the zinc and the manganese. So I think these are very nutritious foods that we can grow very easily ourselves and we don't need a lot of space. And I think that's all part of the diversity. There won't be one solution for our food going forward. There will be many solutions. And growing your own, that's one of them. Glazy, what are you eating in 50 years? I hope my steak. <laughs> 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 I hope that we can have more options the most important that we can eradicate hunger, right? We can increase food distribution, that everybody has the right to eat well and uh, have all the nutrients we need to perform well and uh, live a healthy life. Regardless of what we consume, but I think the most important is that food is accessible to everybody. So I hope we're gonna get there. Isha? I'm more pessimistic. I feel like what we eat in 50 years is completely dependent on the choices that we make now. And if we kind of continue on the path that we've been on so far, I don't know what our choices would be in 50 years. I don't know if Christmas dinner, like if it would be cold outside at Christmas. I don't know if we would have access to many, as many animal products because I feel that that system becomes only more precarious the more industrialized it gets with the you know, antibiotic resistance and viruses and swine fevers and avian flus and all these things that become more prevalent. I think in 50 years, if we continue as we are right now, we probably will actually have less options for what to eat. Probably we'll eat more local because of a lack of choice and might have less access to animal products. But if we make the right investments into diversifying our food system and creating more resilience so we're able to bounce back from changes in the supply chain and to really create resilience in a climate change future, which is like the ultimate skate to where the puck is going to be situation. Um, I think we could have a wide diversity of foods and I don't think it would be just the familiar, I love uh, Ellen's dinner idea. It's the same dinner, but you just, where it came from is different. I also think we could be eating things that are actually 
unfamiliar to us today. For instance, we always talk about how it's much easier to grow cells in two dimensions than in three. So maybe we're eating uh, like crispy, meat is like crispy chip instead of as a steak as we're used to because meat doesn't have to exist in the paradigm of an animal anymore. Instead, it's how it's cultured. And so I like this idea that in the future we have this abundance despite uh, all the changes that we're, we see coming in the next 50 years and it's uh, the choice of familiarity plus novelty. And Allison, bring us home. Builders VC, I'm missing our AGM in San Francisco tonight but we've just invested in a company called Colossal. And I'd love you to take a look at it. And Colossal is bringing back the woolly mammoth. So my bet is we'll be eating woolly mammoth or similar types of things. But the one thing that I really hope, Senator, is I really hope that whatever I'm eating, every single person around the world has the same access at the same cost, at the same texture, perhaps, but I really hope that everyone has the same access. Thank you all very, very much. I wanna thank all of our panelists. I wanna thank all of you for being here. And I wanna especially thank the Chancellor for hosting this wonderful event. Thank you all very, very much. My thanks yet again to panelists Allison Sundstrom, Isha Datar, Glazy De Silva, Bill Shostak, and Ellen Goddard for that wonderful discussion. And my thanks too to University of Alberta Chancellor Peggy Garrity for organizing this Chancellor's Forum and for inviting me to host this panel. Alberta Unbound is edited and produced by Caitlin Cummings, and the Chancellor's Forum was produced by Tyrell Brochu. And while we're on the subject of food, a shameless plug. Starting Sunday, December 18th, I'm bringing back YegQuest, my Edmonton photo scavenger hunt in which people solve clues to track a chicken named Hende as she explores the city. This year, the hunt has a Hanukkah holiday theme. It's called the Eight Days of Hanukkah, and you can look for the clues with the YegQuest hashtag on my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and my brand new Mastodon account. I'm Senator Paula Simons wishing you all a happy Hanukkah, a Merry Christmas, and a healthy and happy New Year. We'll be back in January with more episodes of Alberta Unbound.